Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Black ants on their own and Mexican chapelines, the grasshoppers, toasted with a bit of chilli, I find delicious. Welcome to another episode of On Jimmy's Farm. This is the podcast that tries to relieve you of environmental stresses, give us some of the solutions to the problems, and also give us a little bit of the good life along the way. Now, I'm inside today, I've come in to see one of our more unusual residents, and that is Basil, the anteater. Hey Basil, he's such a curious looking creature. He's got this really long snout, really long nose, tiny little ears. Then he's got these big shoulders with incredible claws on the front, always sniffing. Hey, what's that? And then he's got this really bushy tail, and he can go back on his back legs and come rearing up. It looks incredible. But the thing is with anteaters, in the zoo world, you categorize animals in terms of how dangerous they are. Category one being lions, tigers, things like that. And he's in the category one area, purely because of those whopping great claws. He's not gonna come after you, he's not aggressive, but you just gotta be a little bit careful because those claws have evolved to rip open termite mounds and get into the, the insects inside to eat. And that's what he eats, he eats lots of insects. In fact, I'm gonna give him some now. We've got some mealworms here. Gotta say, Basil, nice and warm in your pad. And he's got this long tongue, oh my Lord. Great long tongue. Look at that, and it shoots backwards and forwards. And it's really sticky. Oh, my hands are covered in giant anteater spit. Something you don't say every day. Isn't that right, Basil? Look at that conch, incredible. Well, today's guest is Dr. Sarah Bainan, and she is an amazing entomologist. Oh, some visitors have just come along and looking through the window at you, Basil. Say hello. Um, yeah, Sarah's an amazing entomologist, and I met her a number of years ago when I was filming a show in Norfolk, talking about insect superhighways. And we've got quite a lot in common. We've both studied entomology, um, and also we both own and run a farm. And Sarah's remit is really about conservation. You know, she really wants to preserve as much of the natural world as possible, but also bring it back to its former glory in a working environment, you know, so it's not necessarily about creating nature reserves. It's also about creating as much wild habitat around a working farm. But one aspect of what she does, and her husband, who's a chef, is that they want to get us eating more insects. I know what you're thinking, Basil. Basil's thinking, this is exactly up my street. 
It might sound madness, but it actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, we're quite squirmish when it comes to eating insects. You know, we've all seen those shows, I'm a Celebrity, all that kind of stuff, eating bugs, disgusting. But in terms of the amount of protein you can produce per acre, insects are super efficient. And the protein they produce is really good quality, really good for us. It has very little impact on the environment. So me and Sarah have a good old chat about catching insects, our love of insects, you know, what got her involved in the world of entomology and also the future of what we eat. And do insects play a part in that? So I hope you enjoy it. I know Basil's gonna absolutely love it. I know you and what you do, but tell us what you do. How would you describe your job? It's really diverse, but in a nutshell, I try and get people to care about the natural world using insects as like a base group because they're so important. They're at the bottom of every food chain. And I'm just on a, I guess, on a sort of lifetime mission to to get people to care. So as an entomologist, I do research looking at how important insects are in our day-to-day lives and in terms of food production on our farms um, and then try and translate that that research into something that the general public and decision makers care about uh, and making sure then that we're showcasing these extraordinary little creatures as individuals, the trials and tribulations they face just to survive in a human-dominated world. And then if we can get people to appreciate how important they are, bring that compassion in, then our next step is trying to actually get people to deliver change, to actually look after insects and all the rest of the wildlife that we share this world with. And that's why we then started up, first of all, a research centre on the family farm and then a visitor attraction called Bug Farm. And it's just showcasing this wonder of the natural world to anyone from a, a small child right up to somebody 100 years old and trying to deliver change that way. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because you are scientist come farmer, come nature reserve uh, owner. You know, it's a very varied job. It's quite similar to my job in many ways. You're the person spinning all those plates and doing random weird stuff, keeping it all going. But your first love, obviously you love the natural world, but you are obsessed with insects. You studied entomology, you did your PhD in entomology. What got you into it in the first place? What caused a, a little girl to go, do you know what? I'm going to put down dolls and everything else and playing around and I'm going to get into bugs. I think I was always destined to not be a normal girl. I remember I used to like cut the hair off all my dolls and put like cut their like dresses and make them into shorts. And I was never particularly normal as a child growing up on a farm. But I think having kind of an upbringing on a, a mixed family farm where it was a matter of you put your life and soul into caring for the animals, growing the crops, looking after the wildlife on the farm. I couldn't really have had any other career because I had my father on one hand, who was a fantastic salt of the earth farmer. And then I had my mum as an artist who was this creator and educator. She was a teacher as well. And then my grandmother, my mum's mum as a teacher. And so bringing all that together was this passion for animals and for the natural world, but also discovery and my gran would take me out as a kid and we'd go and do sort of little mini research projects on what we'd find in the hedgerows I guess that just inspired that wonder and in a world where we think we know quite a lot about a lot and we're often we're, we're often kind of we forget don't we about the wonder of the world we're always so busy everything becomes very much what has to be done and we forget about just going out and going this stuff is 
blooming amazing, this life that surrounds us. And I was terrified of spiders as a kid, like proper freak yeah. out, jump on sofa screaming. So it wasn't that I wasn't frightened of creepy crawlies as a kid and a teenager, but I, I remember just being really angry with myself and thinking, right, I can't be that girl who screams at a spider. And so I bought myself a tarantula uh, and I kept her as a pet and <laughs> got over it. And she still lives with us today. So That's amazing, <laughs> isn't it? That is amazing. Just shows you how long-lived tarantulas are. So you know, cool. um, Tell us how important insects are, and basically in our daily life. I think none of us realise even yet how important they are. They're carrying out all the processes that we just rely on without realising it. And we only start realising when those processes aren't working. Then we spend you know, vast amounts of money trying to make them work synthetically. So insects are responsible for for things like decomposition, so the breaking down of organic materials. So right through from decomposing leaves into soils, it's like earthworms are doing that, our springtails. And then my favourites, which I did a huge amount of my research on, the dung beetles, breaking down poo. And the whole world would be covered in feces if it weren't for dung beetles. And and it it would be awful. I've got to say... I've been to some towns a bit like that before, but it is, it is so true. I mean, you look at those beautiful natural history documentaries of the savannah and it's always a, a lion chasing down a wildebeest and it's all epic. But yet without you know dung beetles there, it would be a terrible place. Yeah, the whole world would be. I mean, we think it is just those African savannas, but as you know, that's happening in our fields and pastures and hillsides here in the UK. It's just on a slightly smaller level, so we don't notice it so much. And we've got lots of species of dung beetles native to the UK. And we worked out, I was really interested a few years ago, say, right, economically, how important are dung beetles to our, say, UK cattle industry? And we worked a really conservative estimate that they're saving the UK cattle industry about £367 million a year. And that's today, with all the chemicals we're throwing at them that are killing them, that are stopping them working properly. And if we stopped doing that, if we actually started looking after them a little bit, they could save us so much more money. And it's not just money, is it? It's, you know, they benefit in terms of clean water, greenhouse gas emissions, all those sorts of things. And then we've got pollination, we've got parasite control, pest control that insects and other invertebrates are just absolutely vital for. And we would not be able to produce food for humans without them. It's interesting that the concept of the dung beetles and the chemicals we put out there, because a lot of people say, oh, is what you're spraying pesticides? It's not like that, is it? It's like if your cattle are out there because you've got cattle, the idea of them to stop them getting intestinal worms, you'll give them something like ivermectin, which is to flush out the internal parasites. And of course, that passes out through their dung, doesn't it? And so that chemical in there that's designed to kill parasitic worms will also kill the larvae of the dung beetle. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a huge problem, largely because people just haven't been aware of that. And it's become the norm that you treat your animals, your cattle, your sheep, horses, etc., regularly with these different chemical groups without really thinking much further about what the parasite burden is. Do we need to treat them in the first place? Often the case is no. You can check your parasite counts of your livestock with simple fecal egg counts. And it often comes back saying you don't need to use these chemicals. And even things like the sprays we use on our, our animals for fly control a lot of these will go through into the dung and kill dung beetles. Or if they don't kill them, they change their behaviour. So they're not as efficient at flying and dispersing to new areas or finding mates. And a lot of the chemical groups that we've thought are fairly safe up until recently, as we've become a little bit more sophisticated with our research, we're finding that they have detrimental effects as well. So I think that the key really is from us as farmers is to not just be doing what we did last year and what our past generations did. It's actually saying, right, do we need to be using these chemicals and 
at the end of the day, we shouldn't really have to because our animals should be able to be strong enough to fight off parasite burdens in their own right. It's just as we intensify production, we keep more animals in smaller spaces. They're a bit more stressed. The land's more stressed. And that's where the issue comes, where we then have to kind of jump in because they're not so good at fighting and developing immunity. It's a funny one. So I've, I've been to so many different countries where insects are a norm. And actually, we're one of a handful of countries where we don't eat insects. And if you look at, say, I don't know, you go to Mexico, the pre-Hispanic diet ate insects all the time. It's one of the healthiest diets in the world. Now they've got one of the most unhealthiest diets in the world because of industrialization and uh, high fructose corn syrup and all that kind of stuff. But the problem I've got with it is this. And I've seen there's an insect farm that I've been to in Holland that make burgers and stuff like this. The concept of eating insects is very unnatural to us, isn't it? I mean, I've eaten, I've eaten lots of insects. What's your favourite insect to eat? <laughs> I like them made into dishes. So you, uh, okay. if, I think that's the key from someone who's super squeamish like me yeah. is don't highly process them, but make them into a, a dish that you're already familiar with. Although saying that, black ants on their own and Mexican chapelines, the grasshoppers, toasted yeah. with a bit of chilli, I delicious. find delicious. Yeah. Well, I've got my favourites. So I like a hornet. <laughs> okay so i've had hornets abroad and they've been delicious and nutty and the odd cricket but i hate them when you're on your bike and one flies into your mouth that's not the way to eat insects <laughs> but it is a cultural thing we would squirm at it so i think insect protein as animal feed has a huge role so the idea of processing insects and turning it into chicken feed or pig feed is is great but the key just like you said is turn them into a dish isn't it turn it into something that we recognize so if you turn it into a meal, then you could process it into a burger or sausage. Or, you know, if you've got something that's larger, often I think that's not as bad because we eat prawns, don't we? We eat prawns and langoustines and lobsters and we eat loads of shellfish like oysters and mussels and clams. We don't have a problem with that at all. But if you had a beautifully toasted grasshopper, a lot of people would go, oh, I don't know about it. We need to get over that squeamishness. I think so. And I think because in the UK and, and in Europe, it's been treated as a novelty for quite a long time. And as soon as you see a whole insect, you picture these newspaper headlines, you picture the novelty value, you picture a certain television series where they may eat insects for novelty value. And I think we have seen over the past kind of, gosh, however long it's been, six, seven, eight years, a real change from public press coverage of it being a novelty to actually looking at it from a sustainability point of view. And I think it's that, it's education and educating young people who are more mm. open to change. You know, by the time that we're, we're adults, we're quite set in our ways. It's been great, actually. The last few years, Andy, my husband and I. Andy's a chef, isn't he? So Andy runs Grub Kitchen, a cafe on site, which is brilliant because Andy makes them taste fantastic. Yeah. And I think that's a huge part of overcoming this issue. So we started at Bug Farm Foods as a business to manufacture food made from insects and then wholesale retail as well. And we've been working with school children on a project with Welsh Government and Innovate UK to actually look at overcoming this issue. And so we brought the school children on board to help us develop food that they would eat on their school lunch menus made from insect protein that would tick all the nutritional boxes from our side, but would also be fun and exciting, but wouldn't just be that one off. We'll have it once and that's it. We've ticked the box to eat insects. And we ended up actually going for a bolognese. Well, it's a mince called Vexo. So it's a mixture of vegetable protein and insect protein. So the name exoskeleton and then the word Vexo means to mix up. So we're sort of shaking up the food industry. And then we did lots of trials where we then put it on the school menus and looked at the uptake as well. And we did work with the University of the West of England looking at kids 
perceptions. And it's really, really positive. 100% of kids loved Vexo. 60% of them chose it on a school meal. And it actually increased the take up of school lunches on the days that Vexo was on the menu. So I think that's the way it's got to go. And it's providing the education alongside it. So we went in and gave workshops as well. And we got the young people infused. And then they went on to do more and more projects looking at food sustainability. And then off the back of that, wanted to learn more about what they could do to live more sustainably. And mm. um, so I think that's the way it's got to go. And if you think about it, when you look at natural ecosystems, the insects, the invertebrates that are there that are taking up nutrients that are either a waste product or through death and decay or whatever else, they are experts. They are the best at making the most of very little. And so if you look at that in terms of farming, one amazing thing insects do is produce more insects at an alarming rate. And so you can produce huge quantities of protein in a very small area, can't you? Yeah, and a lot of people think, gosh, you've got to eat a lot of insects to get the same protein as you would say from beef. But like you say, because they breed so quickly and grow so quickly, then that's not an issue. I mean, I think insect farming for me ticks all the boxes. So first of all, I care about animal welfare pretty much more than a lot of things in the world. And the fact that the insects that are farmed for human food production are species that actively cluster together. So things like mealworms and crickets. Yeah. So if you put 100 of them scattered across a room overnight, came back the next morning, you'd find them clustered together in a corner because their welfare is higher when they're touching others of the same species, which means you can farm them intensively close together without it impacting their welfare. So that's a massive tick for me for a farmed animal. So you can farm a lot of them in a small space. And you can farm them vertically. So you can put the different kind of boxes of insects on top of each other. So you can use land very efficiently. And then comes the kind of environmental side that they convert their feed and very low quality feed into edible protein. Amazingly. Mm. So they can kind of utilize side streams of crops that we're producing already. So they can feed on the husks of wheat and barley, the kind of tops of carrots, the bits that we're not utilizing in an efficient way we can then push over to insect production and they use a fraction of the water and produce hardly any greenhouse gas emissions doing it. And you can actually cycle the heat within an insect farm because it's an indoor system where some parts of the life cycle will let off heat and some require it. So you can bring technology and robotics in to create very, very efficient, very different farming systems. And I think it is really exciting from every level. Yeah, it's something we shouldn't be afraid of. And I think like, the Getting creative in the kitchen with them is one aspect. And I see, you know, even fine dining as being part of that. Mm. But the other side of it, you know, helping to feed our other proteins that we're used to, chicken and pork and all the rest of it, they have got to have a place in our modern farming systems, particularly even, even fish farming as food for yeah. fish farming. You know, the idea of using wild fish to feed fish, if you had a trout farm and you're feeding them on an insect-based protein, it makes common sense, doesn't it? And also their efficiencies, so that's why they're the basis of so many food chains. You know, that's why everyone else eats them. Exactly. It's incredible. We just need to get over that squeamishness of it. And what do you think like shows like I'm a Celebrity? That hasn't done eating insects in any favours. Oh, don't get me wrong, I love Ant and Deck and I wouldn't hear a bad word against them. But because it's always, you know, eating a kangaroo's penis or whatever else, and then you've got to eat a cockroach. I think it's a really difficult one. I think when it started, I think it at least started the conversation. And I think that was really important when no one in the UK had even considered the idea of eating insects. But I think now 
it's a real shame that it's seen as a challenge. I'd really, really love I'm a Celebrity to move the insects out and do a big press release saying, actually, this is a sustainable source of food. We don't want to see this in the same way that we see these gimmicky challenges. That could be so powerful for the industry. And I think it is about time for that to happen. And I think the other thing was when they were eating live invertebrates, I think they ate live spiders at one point. And there was a you know big furore about that, as there should have been. You know, they're animals. Yeah. But then by removing that from the challenge, I think, again, that provided the education of people saying, oh, maybe we shouldn't just go out and eat them alive. Maybe we should care about them. And then more regulation coming in recently with certain invertebrates being put on the sort of sentient animal bill. Then I think that change is happening and people are starting to go, oh, yeah, we need to think about their welfare, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because the idea of this resource going to waste seems crazy, doesn't it? That we couldn't utilise them as part of our food system. But we're not saying that everyone should go out and start collecting insects from the wild and you know putting them in between two bits of bread. It's got to be regulated. Are you producing insects to eat now? Or what's the legislation? What, what do you have to go through? It's really complex at the moment because of Brexit. So up until recently, we have been obviously doing what you do in Europe. So insects are classed as novel foods in Europe. So they're legislated under the novel foods regulations. Since Brexit, the novel foods regulations from Europe have not been transferred to the UK. We're not entirely sure why that was missed. And so currently the UK are re-regulating insects. So at the moment, we are pausing selling insects as food until we hear back from the Food Standards Agency. So the UK Edible Insect Network, the Woven Network, are working very closely with the Food Standards Agency to move this barrier because it is, it's a huge barrier and it it could mean that the UK could fall very far behind the rest of the world in this emerging growing industry. And especially when the Prime Minister talks about the UK being a world leader in novel proteins on pretty much the same day that we stopped selling them. There's a challenge ahead. We don't personally farm them here, actually. Andy and I decided at the beginning, that, exactly as you've been saying, that we could make more of a difference if we went down the educational route and looked at changing attitudes. So we went down the let's create some great food products made from insects and really push selling those and then work with other insect farmers in the UK to actually get the insects from them. So, yeah, it's a difficult time. But I guess that's the same with anything new and innovative. You have these little kind of bumps in the road that you need to overcome to move forwards. Yeah, absolutely. But it's one of these things. We've got a chance to get ahead of the game here because we can write our own legislation and really push it forward. You know, the idea of every tomato house growing tomatoes and all that heat that's been used to have an insect farm on the side of it, yeah. producing usable protein, it all makes sense. You know, every building that's got aircon that's producing all this heat that uh, we could then have a little insect protein farm producing usable protein. It's got to be the future. Now, when it comes to eating insects, then, are there any that you shouldn't eat? Are there any that you've got to be careful of? Anything that's venomous, you've got to be obviously very careful of. But again, I think the main point is don't just go out and try and eat some insects. Eat something that's regulated because anything that you collect from the wild it could be a protected species. It could be something there are only a few left and then you could wipe out the species or it's very likely to have come in contact with pesticides. And so you'll be eating something that can kind of accumulate pesticides, which obviously if they're farmed indoors in very controlled conditions with a lot of testing of the safety and the microbiology, then you know exactly what you're eating. So stick to things like crickets, mealworms, locusts and buffalo insects and those are the ones that are regulated in Europe under the novel foods regulations at the moment. I mean there are at least 2,000 species of 
insects that have been classed as edible across the world. Wow. But in Europe, and we assume in the UK, that they're not currently regulated. But before this regulation came in, you know, you've had much more choice of insects to eat. And we were able to import things like black ants that just tasted, they were amazing, this citrusy and beautiful flavour from the formic acid. And so hopefully, as the industry expands, that will open up again to make have more of a diversity. So chefs like Andy can be more enthused by these sort of, yeah, new flavour combinations. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, if we think about the animals that we eat, the beef, the lamb, the chicken, the duck, the whatever it is, all of a sudden, you look at insects and you open up a floodgate of new flavours and textures, stuff that, like you say, those black ants. So I remember being in Mexico in this restaurant, top end restaurant. It was like your mouth was just like taken on a roller coaster ride, like bang, 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 bang. We were eating shield bugs and we were eating different hornets and then ants. And it's like, this is like lemon. This is like lemon on fire. And then all of a sudden, something it's just like incredible. And I think that's what's really exciting. Those new doors that are going to open up. Once all that squeamish nonsense goes, it's got to be there. The other thing I've got to say is, though, where are the vegans going to sit on this then? Yeah, really difficult. I would say officially, <laughs> officially, somebody who would say they were vegan would not eat insects because, obviously, they're an animal. But I'd say it's difficult. So I'd say about 70, 80% of people who come to the bug farm and say, I'm vegan, I don't know where I sit on this. By the time they've read the information regarding to the animal welfare, the environmental issues, yeah, about 70 or 80% of them will then eat insects. And it starts that conversation. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. think being an entomologist has made you a better farmer i'm a rubbish farmer because (laughs) i love our cows like children um so yeah i can't say i'm a good farmer at all because we actually don't now sell any of our cows they're here as our family 
Because are you still a vegetarian? You were a vegetarian last time. I don't put any kind of stamp on it, but um, personally, I eat a predominantly plant-based diet, as much UK-produced, plant-based, great food as possible. The odd little bit of conservation shot venison as a treat every now and then, but that's just personal. But yeah, Yeah. very much supportive of British farmers and good farming as opposed to the intensification of the global industry. What I mean is, is the understanding of the importance of insects in the environment, does that make you a better farmer in terms of understanding insects and their place in the farming environment? Because you can't farm without them. I mean, we're, I suppose in the 80s, it was always seen a war against nature, wasn't it? Control, control, spray, spray, all the rest of it. But now farming has gone through a total revolution. And we talk about regenerative farming and holistic farming practices. And it's inclusive. You know, we begin to really understand the importance of a, a healthy ecosystem to make our soils healthy. Very much so. From in terms of how we manage the land here, I mean, we're managing it as a nature reserve, but we do grow crops. We have cattle to help manage it. And we don't just jump in. You know, we're not organic per se, but we essentially farm without chemicals because there's always a better method. I always take a step back when we have a problem and try and look at the problem and look at what's causing any problem and seeing is there a management way to solve the problem rather than jumping in with a quick fix, which is often a veterinary medicine or a chemical. And I think the chemicals that have been developed up until recently, they've been very good easy cheap quick fixes but not looking at the long-term issue and you know now we're we're seeing parasites developing resistance to the chemicals so they're not working we're seeing wider spread impacts of herbicides and pesticides and we're seeing like you say our soils totally be degenerated and i think therefore by taking that step back and looking at actually what can we do in terms of the least harm where we can maximize animal welfare maximize yields but sustainably, I think is a really exciting way that farming's going. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? Because we do get caught up in sort of the traditions that are handed down to us. I remember sort of having lots of thistles on the farm and other farmers going, good God, you want to get rid of all them? I can't believe you've got those thistles every... It didn't really affect my grazing. And I found that my goldfinch population exploded because they're all feeding on the heads. And I, I like the bumblebees feeding on the, on the flowers of thistles. Or the other one, which is ragwort people get the knickers in the twist about ragwort so like, that'll kill your horses that'll kill you can't have that and it's like when it's alive the animals ignore it the cattle and the and our horses know that's not good to eat if you do cut it it can be toxic but i was researching into it you've got to eat quite a lot of it to have any major effect but when it's alive cinnabar moths everywhere you know the cinnabar moth caterpillars feeding on it and you get these beautiful moths flying around i think it supports nearly 100 invertebrates that one plant yeah it's odd isn't it how it's been demonized by misinformation we've got horses as well and as horse owners when they're more of the sort of the pet side of animals that we would do anything wouldn't we to look after them and and as soon as there's something that potentially may cause harm and a lot of the popular press is saying it has caused harm we jump on it. And I think it is really dangerous because like you say, things like thistles, docks and ragwort, we've got exhibits here at the bug farm talking about those weeds. And what is a weed? It's all about almost sort of folklore. And as farmers, what our neighbours think. I mean, we have areas of ragwort and thistles and and I just sort of go, oh my gosh, I know I'm waiting for a phone call from someone saying, how dare you let that grow? And yet a few years ago when the painted ladies swooped over our farm, there was a big influx of painted ladies, butterflies, and they all laid their eggs on thistle in one field and you'd walk through the field and it was almost you hear people talk of bygone eras where there were clouds of butterflies that would just erupt Mm. in front of you 
And it was like that. And without those thistles as the food plant for the caterpillar, they just wouldn't have been there. Just wouldn't be there, you know. And they're moving on through, haven't they? They've been through sort of multi-generational migration and it's a spectacle to see. But yet we try and make everything pristine and, and, you know, monocultures of grass and you've got wheat and barley and all the rest of it. And it's all about production and productivity and all the rest of it. But it's actually... Those weeds aren't going to decimate your production, but we are so, as farmers, so conditioned to stamp on them, get rid of them. And also because you're worried what your neighbours think. Isn't that crazy? My dad, I mean, he'd see a thistle from a mile away and you could, he'd get twitchy about it. And he'd, yeah, there wouldn't be no way one thistle on the farm would survive. He'd be there and he'd have it. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. But farming's always been in flux. It's always been in change. And it, it, all this is, is just another change. I think so. And I mean, the farm here is, in Welsh is called Harglod, but everyone calls it the hard slog farm because it is a big bog, basically. We're right in a dip. And you're right, you're making this marginal land that was very wildlife rich into semi-productive farmland was damn hard work. Yeah. How on earth previous generations made a living from this kind of land? Really heavy soils. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's really wet here in the winter. But we're now at a stage where, yes, we're low-stocked, but when we came here, there were no outwintered animals because they all had to be in the sheds. They were all being fed on ryegrass silage bales. But now all of our cattle are out year round. And it's just that slight tweak of the management of grazing more of the surrounding heathlands. And we don't make silage. On the other farm, we now haven't had to feed the animals at all this winter. So in terms of the inputs, if we were looking at it as a financial farming system as opposed to a kind of nature reserve, the inputs are almost you know, negligible. Yeah, and that makes more economic sense, doesn't it? And I suppose the adage is, is that when the average person looks at a farming landscape, we go, oh, the grass is green and cows are grazing. But what they often won't see is the historical inputs through subsidies that allows that to exist. I mean, it, you could say, you know, if the government paid us enough money, I could grow bananas in a glasshouse, you know, using loads of fossil fuels to keep the temperature up. Totally unsustainable. But if you paid enough money to do it, then you can make it work. But what you're doing now is actually farming within your means, is cutting your cloth accordingly, I suppose. But the insects have always been a major focus. Yeah, for the very reason that if we're going to extensify our conventional farming, if we have to let more land go back to nature. There's been some research done recently that shows that basically you have to have 90% of the biodiversity that could exist in an area for an ecosystem to stay within its safe limits to actually function. Here in the UK, we're one of the most biodiversity depleted countries in the world. I think the calculation was that we're down to about 50% of biodiversity. So That's crazy, isn't it? Because we look at this green and pleasant land yeah. and we all think foxes and badgers and kestrels on the roadside and we don't see ourselves as depleted and in, in, you know, all these amazing animals and plants. No, and it's because I think we've been taught that this patchwork of green fields is ecologically green, is environmentally green. Whereas a lot of, like you say, these green areas are barren deserts for wildlife. And it is just re-educating ourselves as to what an environmentally green landscape looks like. So I think, you know, we've got to do something. So we've got to slightly change how we farm conventionally, which does mean even if we carried on farming as we do today, if we all carried on eating as we do today, we're going to need, what, 70% more food by 2050. And we're going to need to double beef meat production that halve the environmental impacts as compared to today to meet standards. And it's quite a difficult picture if we're just looking at carrying on the status quo. And that's where we feel that farming insects for food comes in. And I think, again, it's very much not saying it's insects or 
other vertebrate meat. We don't want to be looking at it that way. It's saying that actually, even if we carried on doing what we're doing today, we are not going to sustainably feed a growing population. So we have to look at alternatives. And insect protein is highly nutritious and highly, highly sustainable to produce. And with your farm now, what's the future? What are you doing on on the bug farm? Because there's exciting stuff. You want to reintroduce new species. What do you want to do? So we've got 100 acres here at the bug farm and then another 100 acres of land dotted around the St. David's Peninsula, which is just the most beautiful place in the world. And we're turning it into a nature reserve. So it's something I've always wanted to do. And I think lockdown really gave us the time for Andy and I to just sit down and say, right, what do we want to achieve in our lifetimes? And we said, if we can go with a nature reserve where the land is protected by law after our days and will never be lost for wildlife, that's what we want to do. So that's what we're doing. And the last kind of couple of years, obviously, we've not been able to be open to the public, as you know, in terms of as much as normal. And so we've had a full sort of staff team thinking, you know, how the heck are we going to keep people on and keep people working without that income coming in? Yeah. So we've been really lucky that Welsh Government has provided some fantastic nature recovery grants. And so one of the projects we've all been kind of working on is a, a project looking to bring back the marsh fritillary butterfly to the St. David's Peninsula. So it's a butterfly that is declining across all of its range. And it went extinct here on the peninsula, I think in about 2013. And it requires marshy grassland. So the sort of grassland that was drained for productive agriculture. And it requires the devil's bit scabious plant that grows on marshy grassland. And that's a food plant for its caterpillar. And it needs quite a lot of little patches of these because it actually has this fantastic way of dispersing in metapopulation dynamics, where you have little booms and busts of populations across a larger area. So we are recreating these marshy grasslands and collecting devil's bit scabious seeds, growing them up into plug plants and then planting them. And so, yeah, the whole bug farm team has been like wading around in bogs the last (laughs) couple of winters planting scabious. They hate me, I think, right now, but it's on its way. So we just need to make sure we've got enough of the habitat, first of all, that's protected there for the long term. And then if the butterfly doesn't come back on its own, which is quite unlikely to then we will look at getting a license to actually bring it back to the area. And the thing I love about it is that you want to leave a legacy. I think it's really important because it's very easy, isn't it, for wildlife habitat to be lost. You know, you can very quickly plough it or drain it overnight and it's gone. And that's what concerned me was, well, I can sit here and be dogmatic and difficult and make sure that nothing happens over my lifetime. But what happens when I go? Mm. You know, we've been thinking in the world in very short terms, haven't we, for a long time. And I want to think long term. And We're now trying to create frameworks of how if you've got a farm or you've got a small patch of land that you care passionately about, how can you protect it? Yeah, absolutely. So we're looking at at ways of doing that ourselves as a bit of an example and then providing that information to other people so that they can use this as a framework to protect their land for nature as well. So where can we find out more about your bug farm and the kitchen as well? I mean, it's fascinating. So we've got a website, which is thebugfarm.co.uk. And we're open to the public pretty much year round with extra opening during kind of summer hours as well. And so people can come here. We've got a tropical invertebrate zoo. Uh, We've got museums. We've got history of farming exhibits. We've got farm trails, walks through all the wildflower meadows, arable trails to show kind of how we produce food, wetland walks, uh, hopefully complete with marsh fritillary butterflies one day in the future. And then the restaurant as well. And Grub Kitchen is the name of the restaurant which you can visit when you come to the bug farm. There's lunch service so that Andy and I have our evenings together. We've decided not to do evening service so that we have a a life. Can I just ask, what's on the menu? What's on the menu in the grub kitchen? 
So normally when we're able to serve edible insects, it will be a mixture, about 50-50 insects to non-insect dishes. So yeah. things like our Vexo Bolognese, there will be a bug burger, so an insect protein burger. Then there will be a vegetable alternative. Oh, Andy does amazing foods through to delicious cakes and puddings and really good local salads grown by the organic farm down the road. All ingredients sourced locally, great veg, casseroles in the winter, cows. So it's basically, it's food that you know, but Andy makes, he's just got a way with food of making it taste so good. You can taste the dish and be like, Andy made that. Um, So yeah, I'm so lucky. I love it. It's been so lovely to catch up again, Sarah. Yeah, you too, Jimmy. Lovely to speak to you. Bye-bye. So there we go. That was the lovely Sarah talking about all things bugs, uh, including eating insects, which I think is quite a hard pill for lots of us to swallow, but we should really think about it. You know, maybe not eating insects directly like a whole cricket, but maybe if they're turned into a powder and turned into a, a burger, or even we turn them into food to feed our other domestic livestock. I know Basil. Basil, what do you think about eating insects? You don't think of anything else, do you, to be honest, Basil? You'd love to have been there, you and your big long tongue. But it is something we need to consider. You know, it's food of the future. Who knows? But listen, guys, if you've enjoyed it, if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us, like, subscribe, wherever you get your podcasts, including Spotify. And I will see you next time for another episode of On Jimmy's Farm. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.